Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. We are back in the book of Hebrews. We took a little bit of time off, uh, but we're back in it this morning, kind of, uh, because it felt a little unique to kind of have a full semester diving in verse by verse, line by line, and then just to jump back in after like six, seven weeks off. And so I'm assuming most of us this week, knowing we were jumping back into Hebrews, you know, went back and listened to every sermon we did uh, last semester just to get ready, right? Okay, no, uh, that's okay. They're great, available online and anywhere that podcasts are as well. So you can go and subscribe to that, uh, shameless plug. But uh, for those who had it, which is all of us, or if you're new here, uh, we're gonna spend some time this morning just remembering the heartbeat of Hebrews. So we're not necessarily gonna go chapter by chapter or moment by moment. We're gonna remember the heart of Hebrews, what it's pointing to, and more specifically, who it's pointing to. And so if you do have your Bibles or Bible phones, why don't you turn to the book of Hebrews? And as you do so, let me kind of set up our time for us this morning. Uh, It was back in 1981, where there was a guy named Steve Callahan who was lost at sea for 76 days. And the reason he was lost at sea for this amount of time was because he built a boat on his own and tried to go across the Atlantic. Now, midway through, a whale attacked him. So men... What do you do? When was the last, you know, the last time a whale attacked you? Uh, what did you do? Right? You, you, you fought it off. That's what he did. He, he fought off a whale in the middle of the Atlantic, but it destroyed his boat. And so what he did was he climbed into this little makeshift raft that he had built. And for 76 days, he drifted through the Atlantic. And instead of just focusing in on his situation, or instead of just kind of hoping for the best of drifting into the right course, what he did was he built what was called a sextant. He built this makeshift nautical tool that's designed really to do one thing. It's designed to help you focus in on some fixed points and unchanging points in reality. And for him, it was the North Star that's above in the horizon line. And by focusing in on these fixed points, he could understand where he was on the globe so that he could paddle into the right current, so he could get into the right current, and he could not just drift, but come back to safety, to life. And that's exactly what he did. That because of these two fixed points, he was able to navigate from where he was and not just drift, but rather to move back into life. Now, why do I mention that to you? Well, because what Steve did in that moment was he went all in on these two fixed points, the North Star and the horizon line. And because he was so focused in on that and not just hoping that he would drift to the right place or not just looking at the devastation around him, but rather focusing in on these fixed points, he was able to navigate into life. And the truth is we as believers are prone to wonder, prone to leave this God that we love. We're prone to drift and it doesn't take long for us to do that. And the reality of it is, is what God has done for us is he has given us these two fixed points to focus in on. And that's who God is and what he's done for us. 
As you read through the course of your Bible, that's what you see playing out over and over and over again, that God wants to remind us of who he is and what he's done so that as we look at these fixed points before us, we can then navigate to the life that God has for us. And that's where we've been so far in the book of Hebrews. That the book of Hebrews, as a reminder, was a pastor. The book of Hebrews itself is an entire sermon written by a pastor who looks out on his congregation that he deeply loves. And as he looks at them, he begins to see that they're starting to drift off course, drift away from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so what he wants to do is he wants to lift their eyes to see him, who he is, what he's done, because he deeply loves these people. And they're being tempted to drift because of persecution. They're being tempted to drift to old ways of thinking, old ways of living tempted to drift to kind of go back to what just is comfortable for them. And what he does is he calls them to draw near because he knows that drifting requires no effort and may even lead you to a moment of relief or peace, but it's never lasting. And we don't, never drift the right direction. That when we drift away from the author of life, it only leads to death and destruction. When we drift away from the author of joy, it only leads to sorrow. And so what the author of of Hebrews is doing as he sees his congregation drifting, he knows the devastation that can happen in their families, amongst their friends, at their work, in their life. And so he's gonna look them in the eye and say, don't drift away. I want you to draw near to Jesus. I want you to look at these two fixed points of reality of who he is and what he's done. Why? Because he's better. And so if this is your first time here, we wanna say welcome to you. We're gonna hear the heartbeat of the whole book of Hebrews this morning. And if you've been here, let's remember where we've been so that we can prepare our minds, our hearts, and our lives for where we're going. Because this is the heartbeat of Hebrews. It's the heartbeat of God that we would not drift away from Jesus but draw near to Jesus, because Jesus is better. That's what we're looking at this morning. And it's my hope that as we look at these things, that we would continue to navigate our life with Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus, because he's better. So the first thing we're gonna look at is to not drift away from Jesus. As you look throughout the book of Hebrews, there's these different warning passages, and the very first one comes up in Hebrews chapter two. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, who Jesus is and what he has done. We gotta focus in on these set points of reality. Why? Lest we drift away from it. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this ebb and flow of encouragement and celebration of who God is, what he's done. But then there's also these deep warnings. There's five of them, back to back to back to back to back. It's warning us to not drift away. And so all of these different warnings are kind of building in on one another. And the first warning is just that, to not drift away from the gospel. That this is the slow fade from full devotion to passive Christianity. If you were here a couple of weeks back when Jeff kind of taught one of these passages, he kind of gave this litmus test to kind of see in ourselves, hey, are we drifting? Because drifting can happen quickly. It can be subtle at first, but it never stays there. And so he just asked a couple of questions. One, if, you're, if Sundays are the only time you're getting into God's word, or interacting with God's people, you're drifting. If you have less of a love for God now, today, than you did a month ago, a year ago, you're drifting. If you've stopped fighting sin in your life and just gone, you know what, this is who I am, this is what it's, 
what I have struggled with. If you've stopped fighting sin, you're drifting. If right here, right now, you're internally debating whether or not, even though this is true for you, whether or not it's true for you, you're drifting. If you're going, well, no, yeah, I haven't read my Bible in like a month, but I'm doing good. Me and Jesus are good. You're drifting. And drifting can happen to anyone. It can start small, but it doesn't stay there because from drifting comes disbelieving, disbelieving the gospel. That's when you start to question fundamental realities of who God is and what he's done for you. You start to drift away from him. It doesn't take long for that gap to all of a sudden be filled in your mind about, man, does God really love me? Does God really trust me? Is God really there for me? And from there, it doesn't take long to grow in a dullness towards the gospel. That's when you become bored with God, with reading your Bible, with church, with the community of God around you, you just become dull towards the gospel. You become lackluster towards it. You become bored with it. And from there, it doesn't take long to start despising the gospel. That's when you start looking for other means of life and satisfaction and joy and meaning because you've started to drift. Then you disbelieve. Then you become dull towards it. And you go, okay, if God's not where I find life, I'm gonna find life someplace else, whether in my job or in leisure or in media or in sex or whatever that might be. I'm gonna try to find it there because I don't, I don't even believe this anymore. I'm dis, despising this gospel. And so I'm gonna look for other avenues to give me life in abundance. And from there, you just begin to deny the gospel. That's when you begin to stop responding to God, you begin ignoring him, or the popular thing today is to deconstruct your faith with no intentionality of reconstructing it based on who Jesus is and what he's done. These build on one another. And where drifting can feel very small, just a little bit of wreckage around you, all of a sudden, left unchecked, it leads to disbelieving, to dullness, to despising, and ultimately denying. And as you think about the people in your life, many of us know someone that maybe started with this seemingly full devotion to Christ, that they were really pursuing them, and, and it was making some transformational reality in their life, and you begin excited to see that coach, that friend, that father figure, that spouse, that, that, that child, and then all of a sudden, you saw the drift. And that drift didn't stay there. It led to devastation and hurt in your life and the life of those around you. Maybe it was adultery. Maybe it was abandonment. Maybe it was a porn addiction. Maybe it was a physical or an emotional abuse. Maybe it was an apathetic husband or a passive roommate. Maybe it was a father that started neglecting you or a pastor who failed morally. We've all seen the spiral and we've seen where it leads. And those are hard, but those are objectively real. There was people in our lives that maybe looked like they were running after Christ, but then they started drifting. And before long, their hurt became a hurt for you. And yet it's easy to look out there. And yet what the scriptures are there to do is to to give a mirror unto ourselves. And so the question I wanna ask you, more importantly, is are you drifting? Are you disbelieving? Are you growing dull or despising or denying the gospel?
Are you on this spiral? You can only lie to yourself for so long before you start to see the devastation around you. And yet the good news is that no matter where we're at, there's hope. Because the passage I just read says that we ought to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. That if you're starting to see in yourself a drifting away from God, what does the scripture call you to do? It says pay much closer attention. That's literally the, the Greek word adu, which means to look, to behold. I want you to have your gaze fixed on who Jesus is and what, you, what he has done. And so the remedy for drifting is to draw near. It's to draw near to who Jesus is, what he's done. That's why one of the anchor verses in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 4.16 that says, let us then with confidence, what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and to help us in our time of need. And so the command right here to draw near is a very powerful command. Drifting can kind of go, oh, I'm just kind of drifting. That's a powerful reality that's happening for many of us in our lives. And so the command to draw near is the, term that's used elsewhere in scripture to describe an army that's coming to the forefront of the battle, but not in a hope of victory, but in an assurance of victory, that we're drawing near with everything we need for victory in life. It's used elsewhere in scripture to talk about individuals that are drawing near to God with everything that's needed to be done, done for them so they can draw near, how? With confidence, right there. That word confidence means with faith. That we don't draw near to the throne of God because we've cleaned ourselves up. We don't draw near because of what we have done or haven't done or our past or our present. Or We draw near with faith, with a trust in those two set realities that are unchanging who Jesus is, what he's done for us, that he was fully God, fully man, has come to earth to live the life that we could not died the death that we deserved and rose to life, conquering what we cannot conquer, which is death itself and has now made a way for us to have assured hope and confidence to approach the God of the universe. That is who he is. That is what he's done. And so we can walk up with confidence, with confidence, with faith, lowly because of our sin and yet boldly because of Jesus. And so what James 4, 8 says is that when we draw near, we have this confidence because it says that God will draw near to us. That when we create space, whether in a moment in our day or throughout our day, to draw near to God, to remember who he is, to, to recite verses to ourselves, to remember truth of his power, his protection, to ask for wisdom, to ask for guidance, to celebrate him, that there's a promise that he'll draw near to us. And the question that we kind of have to wrestle with is, what do you individually think will happen in that moment? Because a lot of us don't draw near to this God because as we draw near, we, we have this mindset that maybe he's angry with me. Maybe, maybe he's gonna be apathetic towards me. Maybe he's gonna be annoyed that I just come to him with such petty things. And yet what this passage says is that we have this boldness and confidence to draw near, not to the throne of judgment or the throne of apathy or the throne of annoyance, but the throne of grace. 
And as we approach that throne, what we see and what we find is mercy. We find grace. We find help. That our God wants to lavish that upon us. And we're so busy trying to clean up the mess of our destruction that we are drifting we don't even realize it. And all God is asking us to do first and foremost is to look up, to see him, and to draw near to him. Draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need. And what we will find there is God's love, God's strength, God's wisdom at the very throne of God. That's what we find there. And so what does it look like for you to draw near? Like think about that for a second. Think about a moment of your life or a moment this week or a moment this past month in which you go, man, it, it felt like I, I had created some space, right? And it felt like I just was able to draw near to this God. I know for me, my kind of ideal moment is like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of mid-morning because I got to sleep in and I'm sitting outside and it's like perfect 73 degrees, sunny, but a little bit of a breeze, you know? And I got my Bible open, my coffee there, and my kids are inside watching The Chosen quoting verses to one another. And, um, and that's my happy place. And here's the reality. If I'm not careful, I'll wait for that moment to happen. I'll wait for this little ideal perfect moment to happen. And how often does that happen? Never. You have kids, especially young kids, they don't care you're reading your Bible. They are little chaos creatures destroying everything around you. So for every like minute you get in God's word, you have committed to an hour of cleaning up their mess. And so, but I think one of the tactics of the enemy is to present to you this ideal moment and to go, if you can't get there, then don't even bother. And so a day becomes a week, becomes a month, becomes a year. And all of a sudden you're not drifting anymore. You're denying. And so, yes, fight for those moments. Maybe you wake up early. Maybe you stay up late. Maybe it's at lunch. But you fight for those moments where you can section off some time to really linger with God. And yet, reality is reality. And what's beautiful about our God is he doesn't just say, hey, draw near in these little 15-minute quiet times in the morning. But rather, that idea of drawing near is in the present tense. That means that you can actively at any moment draw near to God. And so, yes, carve out times throughout your day and throughout your life in which you can really just focus in on God, but also focus in on God throughout your day. That when the kids are destroying things or when you're in your car or when you're laying in bed or when you're going into a meeting or when you're watching a show or when you're hanging out with friends, you can, in that moment, we have this distinct privilege as Christians to draw near to the sovereign, to the almighty, at any moment of any day. And what we will find in that moment is not apathy or anger. We will find mercy, we will find grace, we will find help. So even this week, I was about to go into a meeting and I just sat in my car for a few extra moments and I just breathed and I just prayed and I just opened up God's word, reminded me myself of what was true about God, but then also what he would have for me to do in that moment, to be slow to speak, quick to listen. And as I walked into that meeting, man, I had a peace, but I had a confidence that whatever happened, God had this and it was a good thing. 
So throughout your day, you can pause, breathe, be still, and know that he is God. But then you can ask the sovereign God of the universe for wisdom, for guidance. You can celebrate him. You can be with him. Instead of trying to fix everything and just paddle whatever direction you think is good in the moment, you can be still and you can look up at those fixed points of reality and realize that he's there and he's with you. And so you can draw near to him. So that's what we do. We draw near to Jesus. And the motivating factor is not to win God's smile. It's because of an objective reality that Jesus himself is better. The entire book of Hebrews is doing this. It's lifting your eyes to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done. And you can dig so deep into it. And you can see the wonder and the mystery and the amazingness about who Jesus is and just marvel at it. And yet, when we see that and we combine that in our heads and we embrace it with our hearts, but then we live it with our lives, then all of a sudden, we begin to navigate our lives in a way that we find the life that God has for us. Because he's not just these distant figures, these distant points. He's in the boat with us. And so the entire structure of Hebrews is that. (laughs) He spends three chapters up front just going, hey, I wanna tell you how amazing Jesus is, just objectively who he is, the superiority of Christ himself in the first three chapters. And then he's going, okay, if you thought that was amazing, watch what he did with that amazingness, with his power, his love, his might, his strength. You know what he did? He took all of that and he directed it at you and at humanity but not to destroy humanity, but to save humanity. And so he focuses on chapters four through 10 of superiority of what he has done, of Christ's work. And, when, and that's like right where we're at. We're in chapter eight. So we're in the middle right here and we're just celebrating who he is, what he's done. And when we begin to really believe that and really live that and really walk that, all of a sudden we'll realize that the only life that's worth living is a life that is built around knowing him and following him. And that is the superiority of the Christian life. That is what, that is the heartbeat of Hebrews. That is the heartbeat of our God. And throughout this entire sermon, he just keeps declaring, guys, he's better. He's better. He's better. In fact, nearly 30 times the words more, better, or greater are used over and over and over and over again. It is overwhelmingly objectively true of one central reality, and that is this, Jesus is better. He's the better revelation of God. He's the better messenger of God. He's the better human. He's the better prophet. He's the better rest. He's the better eternity. He's the better priest. He's the better promise. He's better than your work. He's better than any relationship you have. Jesus is better because he is who you were made for. In him, we live, we move, we have our being. He is who we were made for. He is better. Now that's a great slogan. Put it on a coffee mug, put it on a shirt, put it on a bumper sticker. Jesus is better. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we actually believe that? And do our lives reflect that? So I asked myself that this week. 
spent some time reflecting, just thinking about, do I really believe this? And does my life mimic that? Because there's a lot of good stuff in life. A lot of things that I enjoy, a lot of things that make me laugh, a lot of things that fill my cup. And so I have to go, okay, compared to all of that, is Jesus really better? And so I started thinking about the course of my life. First, I started thinking about the hardest moments of my life. A couple years ago, I got a phone call from my dad saying that my six-month-year-old niece wasn't breathing. Next phone call, she didn't make it. And we had to bury her. A couple years later, uh, my other niece, two years old, was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. This past year, my wife and I are sitting in a hospital room, hoping to hear the heartbeat of our child and didn't. And those weren't just moments, those were seasons in which I was faced with the question, in the hardest moments of life, do you really believe that Jesus is better, that he's worth following, even in the midst of all this carnage and wreckage around you. And what was so sweet this week is I got to reflect on that. I got to think about those moments. I asked myself, okay, where was Jesus in all of those? And every single time, he was in the boat with me. He was with me. Because that's what he promised he would be. Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even till the end. And so in the hardest moments of my life, I can say clearly and emphatically, he's better. He's better. But then I reflected on the sweet moments of life. Is he better than those? Is he worth following in those sweet moments? As C.S. Lewis once said, man, sometimes life is going so well that we're actually tempted to ignore God. You ever been there? Because, hey, things are going well. I don't know if I need them right now. I started thinking about some of the sweet moments of my life in which the time I married Michaela, the time I got to hold both of my sons first, for the first time. And then even like those mundane moments that just are a part of life, those sweet little gifts that God gives you, like when your kids are actually like not being chaos creatures, but are like all together and we're laughing and giggling and playing and wrestling. And I go, okay, is, is Jesus better than that? Is he better than the best? And as I reflected on my life of all the sweet moments, I just came to a point in which I go, yes, he is. He's better than my wife. He's better than my boys. He's better than anything life has to offer me. Why? It's because Jesus can give me and Jesus can give you what nothing else in this world can. He can give you eternal life. He can give you true joy, not fleeting happiness, but true objective joy. He can give you abundant peace regardless of the situation. He can speak to you in the way that nobody else can through all of the mess and all the chaos and all the cobwebs of your mind. He can speak to you objective truth and it radically changes everything. And so as I thought about the hard moments, I thought about the good moments, there was one objective reality. He's better. He's better. And so I don't know where you're at right now in your journey with Jesus. Jesus knows. He knows exactly where you're at. And so for some of you, you might be in a season in which, man, your relationship with Jesus does, it, it feels distant. For some of you right now, man, Jesus is like this part of your life, but he's not the center of your life. 
Or for some of you right now, and this always breaks my heart, but you're in a season in which you just, you really don't trust Jesus or his people because you have some past hurts, past pains associated with God or his people, and I'm sorry for that. Or maybe right now you're in a season in which you're going, man, I, 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 Jesus is my life. And you're experiencing that joy and that, the fruit of walking with him that, 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 it, that he gives. I don't know where you're at, but God does. And let me tell you exactly what God is up to in your life for all of us. He is putting us in various situations, various struggles, various successes, various joys, various sorrows, various seasons to accomplish something predominant in your life. That no matter the joy or the struggle, that you would say with your lips, but also sing with your life what the psalmists say. That who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they might fail. The things I've kind of staked my life on might fail. My family, something bad might, that might happen. My, my, my work, something bad might happen. The things that I fear might come reality. Every single thing might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he's my portion forever. You know what God is up to in your life right now? It is giving you exactly what you need so that you would uncling your grips to the things of this world and cling your grips to him, that you would stop trying to fix your life, but you would focus in on the author of life. And you would look at him for who he is, what he's done, so that no matter what happens, the good, the bad, you could emphatically declare, who have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. Everything might fail, but God, you are the strength and you are the portion forever. You are all that I need. That is what God is up to in your life. And that is what God is up to in my life. Because God knows that life does not truly exist apart from him. So one of my favorite stories comes from C.S. Lewis. He was asked one time at a conference about, hey, streets of gold in heaven, do you think those are real? Or do you think that's like figurative language? And to everyone's surprise, you know what he said? He goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then he said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That I could give you everything and God and it would be enough. But then I could take away everything and just leave God and it would be enough. Or I could give you everything and take away God and it wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't be able to find the life and the joy that God has for you. You could gain the whole world and lose your soul. And that's a terrible place to be. Just look at our world around us. Those people we idolize, those people we celebrate, they have it all. <laughs> no, they don't. In fact, in God's economy, if you have trusted Christ and they have not, you have infinitely more. So stop celebrating Stop dreaming that you could be them because what we have in Christ is better. That is the heartbeat of Hebrews. That's the heartbeat of God, that we would not drift away from Jesus. We would draw near because he's better.
That's where we've been. Now, where are we going? As we begin to understand this reality and to draw near, to focus in on who he is and what he's done, it radically transforms everything about us. And so as the book continues, as we jump back into chapter eight next week, we're gonna see more about what Jesus has done. But as the book closes, the last several chapters just shows you what life looks like as you pursue Jesus. And it's gonna give us two things to consider. The first is to consider Christ, who he is and what he's done. Chapter 12, verse three says, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Maybe you're in here and you're thinking, man, does, does God really, does he like me? What's he really like? What does he really think about me? You consider Jesus. Because the book of Hebrews says that he's the full and final revelation of God. Or maybe you're in here and you're going, man, does God really care about me? Like in my specific situation or my specific sin, you consider Jesus. Because the book of Hebrews will tell us that Jesus has experienced every temptation that we have yet without sin so that he might be a high priest, a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but also help us in our time of need. Or maybe you're in here going, man, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm emotionally, I'm spiritually, I'm tired. I just got this weariness in me all the time and no matter how much sleep or no matter how much binge watching, whatever, just doesn't take it away. The book of Hebrews will say, consider Jesus because he offers true rest, true satisfaction, true joy things that nothing else can give you. And so the first thing we're called to look at, that fixed point of who Jesus is and what he's done. But then it says to consider mature Christians. Now that was almost a little bit of a surprise for me this week. Because as you think about it, no, I'm gonna consider Christ, consider Christ, consider Christ. But then he says, yes, but Christ has given us an us. He literally uses the same word, remember your leaders, those that spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The church is not a building. The church is an us. It's a collection of people that have come to a point in their life that they have declared, I am following Jesus with everything in me and I'm trusting who he is and what he's done. And then from that moment, we go on a journey with Jesus to trust him more, to follow him deeper. And there's a group of people that have been doing that for a while, not perfectly, by a long shot, not perfectly, but also not drifting. Focusing in on who Jesus is and what he has done. And over time, what you see in their life is more of Jesus and less of themselves. And so God has given us these actual people, like all around us, that 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, hey, imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so if you're in this room and, and you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're seeing that fruit of love, peace, patience, joy in your life, if you're looking more and more like Jesus, man, keep it up. Because any one of us can drift and it doesn't take long to go from drifting to destruction. So keep focusing in. But then if you're in here and you're not in that camp, God has given us an us to think about, to consider their way of life, to surround yourself with. 
We said a few weeks ago, you're becoming what you behold. We said last week, you're becoming how you train. I'll say this week, you're becoming who you surround yourself with. You surround yourself with mature, faithful followers. As you run through this life, you go, man, I wanna run after Jesus. I'm gonna look around and go, hey, who's running after Jesus as well? I'm gonna follow them as they follow Christ. I want us to come together, and that is what City Bridge is. That's what the church is. It's not a building you come to. It's a life you live and a people you are. So you consider those that are running out ahead of you and you follow them as you follow Christ. So as Steve Callahan was in the middle of the Atlantic for 76 days drifting, he was focused in on those two fixed points, who that North Star that's in front of him, but then also the horizon line. And because of that, he was able to navigate back to safely. And when he got back home, they asked him, what was it like? (laughs) What was it like to drift for 76 days? You know what he said? He said, every single night, I'd see the most beautiful sunset you had ever seen in your life. And it was taunting me because it was like I was looking into heaven while sitting in hell. All I wanted to do was get back to life, to get back home. And for some of you, you have drifted. And maybe it feels small at first, but that drift leads to destruction and you might be sitting in your own little personal earthly hell right now. And the call is not to paddle your way in a way that makes sense to you or try to clean up your mess, but rather to look up to see before you who God is and what he has done. So that as you navigate and focus on him, you begin to recognize he's not out there, he's with you. And he's gonna give you the strength, the courage, the motivation that you actually need to navigate this life from where you're at to where he wants you to go back to life. So City Bridge, do not drift, draw near, because Jesus is better. He's better. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.